Well, good morning again. Please turn with me, if you're not already there, to Daniel chapter 4 as we continue through this incredible book together. We've just heard of the preservation of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego through the fiery furnace in chapter 3. Which might lead you to believe that the first part of chapter 4, the first three verses there, actually belongs to chapter 3. You would be mistaken, however, and you will see that the first three verses of chapter 3 have been strategically placed here, along with a similar doxology at the end of the story, in order to emphasize something. It is to emphasize the effect that this has on Nebuchadnezzar, this being what unfolds. It's to emphasize the effect of what unfolds. Nebuchadnezzar announces to everyone, he declares to all the peoples, he actually declares a benediction over the nations. It's in a breathtaking way to start the passage. King Nebuchadnezzar proclaims a benediction, peace be multiplied to you. And he says it seemed good to him to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And then, listen to what he says. How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. I mean, does that sound so Jewish, doesn't it? It sounds like it's right out of the Psalter. And even the generation to generation language, that's something peculiar to the people of God. The generation to generation language, that's covenant. That is covenant with you and your children and your children's children. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar is saying something that is far beyond any of just kind of the impressed statements that he has made thus far. And the question going into the story is, what on earth happens here that would cause him to say these things and then say them uh, again at the end of the story? Well, we'll certainly have to see, won't we? And so the story continues. Um, It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in the palace. He's living it up, prospering, hanging out. But as he is doing so, something happens. He says he saw a dream that made him afraid. The fancies and visions, fancies, that's not a word that's usually more of something of your imagination. The visions of my head alarmed me. So he has a dream and he is alarmed by it. And so what does he do? He calls in all the folks, all the folks, come on back, all the folks, come on back. It's from chapter two. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Okay. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans who really dropped the ball last time and the astrologers came in and I told them a dream. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar is moving forward. Last time uh, they didn't provide the content of the dream. At least here he's saying, okay, maybe uh, here it is. But they could not make known to me its interpretation. And you might pause here going through. Daniel, man, it's almost like we've heard this story before. It's like, wow, just sounds remarkably similar. It's like the the, the comment I made last week about the interminable Jean-Claude Van Damme movies that are all the same, or the Jurassic Park movies where all the the core of it's the same, the details are switched around, and it's the same movie repackaged, and you're supposed to go watch it. Well, but there is a repetition here that is certainly uh, intended, and we're going to see why. Of course, they do their best, but they're not able 
And so you might think, oh, my goodness, after all the cow, what is Nebuchadnezzar? What is he going to do? Who could he possibly call in to help him interpret the dream? Oh, I know. Call in Daniel. That's what he'll do. Are we right? Of course we are. At last, Daniel came in before me. He who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And as we read this pattern here again, we think, well, I think Daniel is on the wrong end of the invite list here. <laughs> right? Why on earth? In fact, I was talking with uh, someone after church last Sunday about this. What do you make of these bizarre patterns? I mean, did the king just forget that Daniel was the one who just interpreted his dream? Why is Daniel not the first one in there? Why is he coming in at the end? What could it possibly explain this level of ignorance? We can't be sure, but I think we can make a really, really strong guess given the context of this story in particular, but also the larger Nebuchadnezzar narrative. And that is this, Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Nebuchadnezzar's pride. It would be so nice if I didn't have to admit that once again, not a single one of my wise men pleading my gods and looking at the stars on my behalf can interpret the dream. Babylon needs a win here, all right? Come on. So guess who gets first crack at it? It's these folks over here. It's like, oh man, wouldn't it be great if I could bring them in and they could do the same? They could do the same, thing? Oh, but they can't. And then, last, where is this Jewish exile again who confounds me? Uh, that's right. He's got the spirit of the holy gods in him. Notice he almost tries to take a little bit of credit for him or own him a little bit. When he introduces him, he reminds the reader, he who was named Belteshazzar after the name of my God. That's who I called him. Okay? At least he's trying to hold on to something, right? Purpose of this repetition here is to show us the vain glory of Nebuchadnezzar, but that it is God and no one else who will get the win. So he tells Daniel the dream. O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. Of course, he's already brought the magicians in. Huh. Again, that's another, okay, yes, he's part of my thing here. Because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. And then initially, if you just stop there, it would make it sound like Daniel was going to have to provide the content of the dream, which of course would not necessarily uh, or at all be an obstacle for him. He's already done that once, but that's not what happens. Nebuchadnezzar go, goes ahead and he spills the content of the dream. What is the dream? The dream is of a cosmic tree, this enormous tree. I tried to get a good illustration, a picture, but all the trees I found look like a tree in my backyard. Uh, it was They were all bad. And so you're just going to have to imagine a tree that is so large that it's visible from anywhere on earth and the birds of the field, I'm sorry, the beasts of the field would come and find uh, shade and shelter under the tree and the birds of the air would nest in its branches. It's massive. And in fact, the whole earth was fed from this tree and we learn it's also a beautiful tree. It says that the leaves of the tree were beautiful, verse 12, and its fruit abundant and that in it was food for all. Hey, so far, so good. I'm all about this tree. All right, this is fantastic thus far. And then we get to verse 13. Nebuchadnezzar says, there was a watcher, a holy one, which we're just going to kind of gloss in this moment as an angelic being here. 
who comes out of heaven and actually in his dream, the watcher gives an interpretation to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is having something revealed to him here. Okay? What is revealed? He says, chop down, verse 14, the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit and let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But interestingly, listen to what it says about the stump. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. So the picture is cosmic tree destroyed, utterly destroyed. Everyone who was benefiting from the tree in that sense, gone. And yet there is this mere fraction of what used to be left. It has been reduced to this little tiny thing. And around this tiny thing is a kind of band, a kind of collar, two collars that circle the stump. So in your mind, you're envisioning a stump there in the ground with two uh, metal bands around it. Okay. But then things take a very strange turn as you're reading through. Because we get the introduction of personal pronouns. Personal pronouns to describe a stump. Hold on. Something's going on here. Stumps aren't male or female or persons at all. But remember the watcher is giving Nebuchadnezzar an interpretation. In the second part of verse 15, after he talks about the banded stump, he says, let him, let him, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts. In the grass of the earth, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him and let seven periods of time pass over him. And at this point, you might wonder, along with multiple commentators, did he really have to summon a bunch of interpreters to understand what's going on here? Okay? In fact, multiple theologians interpret the inability of the uh, the Chaldeans and the magicians to interpret the dream because they were afraid of this egomaniac, irrational man who burns people who offend him and, and, and decrees that people be destroyed. And you can, imagine, you can imagine sitting there as you're listening to this, all right, we're here to interpret the dream. And he gets to the point where it's like, oh, and then the stump, they told me it represented a man. Yeah, and the man was, uh, was, uh, was going to be given a mind of a beast and he was going to be driven uh, away. And, and everyone's kind of like, you know, we don't know what that means. You know, we don't know what that means. Yeah, should probably ask Daniel. Okay, and as it turns out, that's exactly what he did. Whether or not that's the case, um, it's not clear. But it seems fairly obvious what is going to happen. At the very least, it's not good, and it refers to Nebuchadnezzar. Everyone hopefully can discern that. We learn that the sentence here is not a light one. It's not a light one at all. Verse seventeen. It's by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. Something like the divine council, which is a fascinating study, but we don't have time for it right now. Something like the divine council here, and this is a decree that represents the authority of God in this. We'll see this confirmed later. Um, what is the end of the decree, though? And verse 17 is the first time of three times that we are going to hear this phrase. It is the author's exclamation point in this passage. The decision is by the word of the holy ones to the end, that is to say, for the purpose that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men 
and gives it to whom he wills and sets over it the lowliest, uh, the lowliest of men. That the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdoms of men, gives it to whom he will, and sets it over the lowliest of men. Then Nebuchadnezzar closes there. He's like, all right, Daniel, you got the spirit of the holy gods. You're batting a thousand so far. You can't lose. What does this mean? And so, for whatever has come before it here, what comes next might be the most unexpected part of the chapter. Certainly reasonable people can differ, I suppose. But in verse 19, we read something astonishing. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while. That's what he was. He was dismayed, and his thoughts alarmed him. So remember, we started the narrative with Nebuchadnezzar being alarmed. Now it's Daniel who's alarmed. Now it's Daniel who's alarmed. This is not only unexpected, but it's bad news. It's kind of one of those, if Gandalf looks worried, you should be worried kind of moments, you know, until not sure how long he stood there but long enough for Nebuchadnezzar to turn counselor to Daniel. Listen to what he says. Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Which is always very effective. When someone's alarmed, the great best counsel is to say, don't be alarmed. It always, or Nebuchadnezzar probably not doing a lot of counseling there in the uh, Babylonian region. But he says, no, don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed, Daniel. Perhaps Daniel's alarmed because, man, he just, he just can't get this one. This one's too tough. That's not it, of course. He gives a response that I wish, as I studied this passage, I thought, oh, man, I would love to think that this is what I would, this would be my disposition if I were Daniel. I really hope it would be. I'm not so confident it actually would. So what he says Belteshazzar answered him and said, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. His dismay and being alarmed isn't because he doesn't know the dream. It's because he already knows the dream and he's sad for Nebuchadnezzar, this crazy man who's tried to kill him and his friends. He wants it to be for someone else. He says, I hope this isn't for you. I hope this isn't for you. Standing in there and Daniel's about to deliver the hard word, but he simultaneously is genuinely alarmed and sad that he has to do so. Andrew Bonner um, gives an example of a a Grecian painter who has this painting of a boy Pairing a bunch of uh, grapes on on his head. And the grapes were so well done in the painting apparently that it went to the the forum or the museum or wherever it was, that birds were actually coming down, pecking the grapes there on the painting. And his artist friend, I guess that's like the ultimate slam dunk if you're an artist, right? In terms of painting something that looks realistic. And so apparently his colleagues were congratulating him, um, but he, he didn't seem satisfied. He said, when asked why, he replied, I should have done a great deal more. He said, I should have painted the boy so true to life that the birds wouldn't have dared to come near 
One pastor talking about this illustration insofar as it applies here says the perfect painting would have forced the birds to be paradoxical, both eager and fearful. And that is the proper balance one meets in the Lord's true servants like Daniel. A love-driven sadness that cringes to speak the hard word of God, yet a God-honoring obedience that speaks it anyways. An incredible response here. He goes on to say what everyone reading it has likely already concluded. Verse 22, the big cosmic tree that gets lopped up and chopped down and all of it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown, reaches to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. But because the watcher, the holy one, because of what he declared about it being chopped down and all the branches lopped off, Here's the interpretation. Verse 24, it is a decree of the Most High. So the the, the decree of the watchers carries the weight of the decree of the Most High. Also very important. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox And you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know, second time, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Second time, we get a glimmer of hope there. Until you know. Perhaps when He knows, maybe this affliction will leave Him. Who knows? We'll just have to see. We'll just have to hope. You notice it says seven periods of time there. Seven is a symbolic number in the, in the Bible. Uh, some theologians try to define it only as just kind of a complete period of time, which I guess is fine. It's true, but, but the philosopher in me, that's not enough. What's an incomplete period of time? What does that mean? If you can't tell me what an incomplete period is, what's a complete period? That doesn't mean anything to me. A complete period of time. Here's what it is. Let me give you a better way to think about it. It's the length of time over which God has appointed to accomplish a particular task. That's what it is. It is the length of time that God has appointed to accomplish a particular task. In this case, we are not told the precise length of time. All we know at this point, at least, is that it is not arbitrary. It is until Nebuchadnezzar comes to know something. And what is he supposed to know? That the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Verse 26 only confirms this. And it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. No, excuse me. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you. Whoa. Okay. So now this is sounding positive. Perhaps we're on the upswing. From the time that you know that heaven rules. So there's hope beyond this, but something has to happen. Nebuchadnezzar has to come to know something in his pride. It is that heaven rules. It is that the Holy One rules, the Most High, excuse me, rules the kingdom of men and gives to whom he wills. And then Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar something he didn't ask for. And it's, you have to connect it with the alarmedness of Daniel in the first part here, 
He pleads with him. He pleads with Nebuchadnezzar, this crazy man. Therefore, O king, verse 27, let my counsel be that you didn't ask for be acceptable to you. Which is what you have to say if you weren't given permission. Just like, please, just give me a pass if you don't like. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. He pleads with him, hey, please break off your sins. Practice righteousness. Show mercy to the oppressed. There's, perhaps there's still a chance for you. He pleads with Daniel. He pleads with Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me. Daniel pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to change his ways. What happens? What happens? John Elias was an 18th century Welsh evangelist who I know very little to nothing about. But he uses his illustration of, the, of a kind of conscience silencing that we see in Nebuchadnezzar here. And we've seen it before already. He, he talks about there was a local blacksmith in his town that got a new dog. And if you thought a dog barking when the doorbell rang was bad, he talks about this dog being at the blacksmith shop. Ding, 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 ding. And this dog just losing its mind all day long. The, the, the response was just this dog going off, barking fiercely at the blacksmith's kind of rhythmic hammer. But he says that as time went on, as he continued to walk by this blacksmith going here and there, the barking became quieter, became less frequent. Till one day he stuck his head in there, and the blacksmith was pounding away, and the dog was just asleep at the, asleep at the fire. And, and I have to wonder if something like that, Something like even the summer camp conversion meets the rhythms of ordinary life phenomena occurs here. That something that at one point justified and called for such a reaction eventually just becomes normal. It just becomes the rhythm. And you fade away. That's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. All of this, we learn, verse 28, came upon Nebuchadnezzar. All of it. It says that uh, after about 12 months, presumably, the better part of a year, which, by the way, is a tremendous length, a tremendous length of time to repent. He's walking in his palace, looking out at Babylon. And what does he say? Verse 30. Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? Look at this place. Look what I've done. Whoops. Whoops. You just messed up. Just messed up bad. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you. The kingdom has departed from you. 
Now I want to point out something that is easy to pass over. There is a tension in this story between Daniel's exhortation to Nebuchadnezzar and what actually seems to cause this to come upon him and the whole purpose of it coming upon him. Humbling him in his pride. The literature has come down to us with differing accounts, but it's widely acknowledged that Roman generals coming back to Rome in triumph and battle had someone in their chariot who would whisper to them, Hominem te memento. Hominem te memento. You are a man. Remember, you are a man. You are only a man. Why doesn't Daniel say something like that to Nebuchadnezzar? Or at least appoint someone to say it for him. Why does he instead tell him to show mercy and be righteous when the primary problem, it seems, is Nebuchadnezzar's incredible pride? We are not given a direct answer. But here's what I would suggest. That Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was as great and as large as it was largely because of his lack of righteousness and lack of mercy to the oppressed. His incredible building programs, the hanging gardens of Babylon, the imperialism of Babylon was fueled by pride, but it was maintained by wickedness, denial of the true God, and oppression. Fueled by pride, maintained by wickedness, denial of true God, and oppression. In other words... What I'm suggesting is that for Nebuchadnezzar to actually practice righteousness and show mercy would run the strong risk of compromising the growth and glory of his kingdom. If people followed his lead, man, things might start to unravel internally. To practice righteousness and show mercy and think that the level of glory and dominion would be maintained was a leap of faith Nebuchadnezzar was not willing to take. Not willing to take in his pride. And so what I suggest is that the two are really the the different sides of the same coin. And I think that's how that tension is resolved here. And it is for that reason that there is a voice from heaven that comes and says, You will be driven from uh, from among men. Your dwelling shall be made with the beasts of the field. You're going to be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until what? Until you know, like third time, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He wills. You will be driven to the field. You know what this is? It's called boanthropy. You ever heard of boanthropy? Boanthropy. It is a horrific, rare, but importantly, very real Mental disorder where the afflicted person believes themselves to be a bovine and acts accordingly. That is a cow or an ox. This is not a joke. Uh, In fact, Old Testament scholar Raymond Harrison actually observed a case of boanthropy in a British mental institution in the mid-1940s. He says there was this guy in his early 20s. He was in fine bodily health, but he was decidedly antisocial. He said he spent the whole days from dawn to dusk outdoors on the institutional grounds He was limited in his ability to care for himself, so someone always washed and shaved him. They gave him water from a clean container so he wouldn't drink from mud puddles. But as he wandered over the grounds, he would pick up chunks of grass to eat, and he never ate institutional cuisine with the other patients. 
This is something very real with which God sovereignly and supernaturally afflicts Nebuchadnezzar. This doesn't just come about. I'm not saying I'm not naturalizing the story. I'm saying what Nebuchadnezzar was afflicted with by God. And we'll see that it's important on some level that Nebuchadnezzar retains some kind of ability to think because if he didn't, how would he know that heaven rules? How would he come to learn the lesson that has now three times been given if his mind was like quite literally one of a cow? So it has to be that, the, that God afflicts him with this horrible mental affliction, but he's not all gone. It's not all gone. He's wet with the dew of heaven. His hair grew as long as eagles' feathers. Nails were like birds' claws. Horrific. But thankfully the story for Nebuchadnezzar doesn't end here. We read in verse four, uh, 34, At the end of days, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. This is that acknowledgement here. That's the acknowledgement language. I lifted my eyes to heaven. And his reason returns to him. His reason returns to him. What was taken away is now given back. Both supernaturally. Supernaturally afflicted. Supernaturally restored. He gets his reason back. It returns to him. And what does he do? I blessed the Most High. And praised and honored him who lives forever. What an acknowledgement. What an acknowledgement. He goes on though. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. There you have it. Remember that from verses 1 through 3? It shows up again. It bookends the passage in a sense. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That is truly remarkable. And after giving us that, he goes on to say what happens to him personally. He reminds us that his reason returned to him. And he says, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor return to me. Verse 36. The majesty that I had, the splendor that I had as a result of my acknowledgement of heaven this way, it returned to me. I got it back. And more than that, read on. My counselors and lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. I got even greater. But unlike other times, as the curtain closes on the Nebuchadnezzar narrative in Scripture. What are his parting words? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. One of my favorite movies, top five, is Inception. Leonardo DiCaprio. A couple other folks. And if you haven't seen the movie, I don't want to ruin it for you. You're really behind if you haven't seen it. But uh, I'm still not going to ruin it for you. But those who have seen the movie, you know that the, the, at, the, at the very end of the movie, we're talking the last 20 seconds, something like that. 
you are left in a position where that, that causes you to hope more than it causes you to conclude. I remember watching the last 20 seconds, the credits rolled, and I turned to the people I was watching it with like, wait, was that, what was going, what, what was that? It left me hoping, but I couldn't conclude. What about Nebuchadnezzar? People always ask the question after this. So Nebuchadnezzar was saved, right? Nebuchadnezzar became a God-fearer with a renewed heart the rest of his days. I hope so. I hope so. But the truth is we just don't know. We don't read about Nebuchadnezzar saying, you know what? We should send these Jew back to Jews back and rebuild the temple, and I'm going to be a sojourner. And I mean, we just don't see that. We know Nebuchadnezzar was truly humbled, and only as a result of being truly humbled was he then truly exalted. We know that. We know that. And we know that he has strong acknowledgement of God's sovereignty, and perhaps most importantly, that he learned the lesson that God had for him. Those are the things we can be certain about, about the Nebuchadnezzar narrative. He learned the lesson God had for them. Past that, I want to urge you to hope with me. You can have William James's will to believe. Can we see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven one day? I hope so. I don't think the text justifies us drawing the conclusion. It's not the point of this story. It's not the point. The point of the story is that as a result of what had happened, Nebuchadnezzar learned the lesson that God had for him. He was humbled, and as a result of being humbled, he was therefore exalted. This is the end of Nebuchadnezzar. Who comes next? Do all Daniel's friends stick around? Do Nebuchadnezzar's successors honor Daniel? How long will the Babylonian regime last there? To have come back next time to hear the next part of the story. I don't have a tremendous amount of time, just because it's a longer passage for application, but I do want to talk about at least two things briefly. Louis XIV, with perhaps the exception of Charlemagne, was likely the greatest monarch France ever had. He, had these, he was, of course, self-designated before he was designated by other people the Great. But by all accounts, what he accomplished was, in fact, great. Uh, Louis XIV is the one who is purported, at least, to have said, I am the state. I am the state. He died in 1715, and ahead of his funeral, which was conducted in Notre Dame, he, he commanded that there be a, a candle placed next to his very ornate casket, but that the entire cathedral otherwise would be dark. Higher cathedral dark with a candle next to his casket. Uh, the very well-spoken-of priest whose preaching he had actually sat under was named Jean Massillon. That was pretty good, wasn't it? Jean Massillon. Who's, uh, and and uh, Jean was presiding over uh, the funeral. The same Jean that was presiding over the funeral, excuse me, had preached to Louis, so much so that Louis said when he heard this man preach, he actually felt conviction. It was well thought of. 
Massillon's task was pretty straightforward, even if it was daunting. Give the eulogy for the monarch largely considered to be the greatest man on earth. That was his task. The service began, but it very quickly took an unexpected turn. Massillon walked over to the candle and extinguished Louis' flame. Before ascending the stairs to the pulpit, from which he epically declared to thousands in the darkness of Notre Dame, only God is great. Only God is great. Why does every man, woman, and child tend toward self-inflation and exaltation and their own greatness? Because it feels so great. That's why. People who deny it are lying. It is intoxicating, and not everyone tastes it equally in this life. There are people who have far more greatness in this life than others. They have a much more high-octane experience of the praise of man and glory. And yet, no matter what, all flesh seeks self-exaltation. No matter what. If you're a nobody in the eyes of man, you are still a somebody in your own eyes. You should know something else about pride. Pride doesn't hope for glory. That's what Christians do. Remember, as I love to say, glory is coming. Glory is coming for you. Glory is coming. Pride doesn't hope for glory. It demands it now. Now. And not only that, it is a comparative glory. It's not just some kind of objective kind of excellence. Listen to how Lewis puts it. It says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or clever or better looking than others. If someone else became equally rich or clever or good looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. There's a way to think about pride that you may not have considered. I want to introduce it to you this morning, if, if you haven't considered this before. And just th thinking about pride as the guardian of greatness. Pride as the guardian of our personal greatness. It doesn't matter how great our accomplishments or our cognitive endowments are. Perhaps they're not so great. Pride is there nevertheless to chaperone and guard our sense of well-being to make sure we have some kind of greatness to fall back on in the quiet of our heart when we're feeling a bit low. Listen to what Tozer says, A.W. Tozer. He says, man's constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of it at all, appears to him a perfectly normal thing. He is willing to share himself, sometimes even to sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of social acceptance he may slide, he is still his own, in his own eyes a king on a throne. And no one, not even God, can take that throne from him. Pride is such an excellent manipulative chaperone to help us feed our lusts for greatness. It can turn the most meager little competencies 
into reasons to boast and have feelings of self-worth. You can usually identify these things by filling in this kind of schema. I know I'm not blank, but I'm better than most at blank, so at least I can hold on to that. There's nothing wrong with being strong or being incredibly successful or being incredibly smart. Nothing wrong with being great. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with being world class. The problem comes in when pride points the finger to these things as the chaperone of your lust for greatness and says two things. You should take credit for this. And this is really a meaningful leg up for you compared to all the others, and it should be satisfying. You should take credit for this, and this is really a meaningful leg up for you compared to others, and it should be satisfying, just like Nebuchadnezzar said. Could be a natural cognitive endowment, could be an ability that you have, could be your success, no matter how meager, could even be a virtue. Nothing is safe from the finger pointing of pride to guard our personal greatness. It could be something that is good. The, the most popular one nowadays that's going around is something like the ability to be open-minded or considerate. It makes me feel so good to know that I'm not part of the class of people who, who's you know, narrow-minded. I, I'm, so, I'm so thankful that I'm one of those people who's willing to listen and grow and be understanding and not like those other people. Are those good things? Yeah, those are great things. But listen to the Pharisee in Luke 18. He says great things too. And he's condemned. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, like the robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I'm so glad that my sin and my, and my distorted beliefs take this shape instead of the shape of those peoples over there. Oh, I'm so, I'm so thankful that I'm like this and I'm not one of them. Pride. That's pr taking pride. You take pride in something that's good. That's why there's always the joke about the guy who wrote uh, 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 the book on humility, you know, humility and how I achieved it. You know? Anything. Oh, now I'm so humble. Oh, wait, now I've lost it. I've lost it. Right when I start realizing how humble and oh, I've lost it. Nothing is safe. Nothing is safe. From pride's gesture. Where they go, where, where, where these things go wrong is not to know themselves. It's when pride takes them from being great things and then whispers because of these things, you're great. You're great. You're the man. You're the woman. You. Look at you. That's, that's what pride does. Look what a great mom you are. Oh man, you can just do it all. Oh, look how well you, you look how look how you crush it in the business world. Oh, look at that. Look how much money is in your bank. Oh, look how good you are at crafting things with your hands. Oh, you can fix any car, can't you? Oh, all of it. Look how much theology you know. Oh, he's so solid. Do you think he's solid? Oh, he's one of those people who's solid. Oh, I'm so glad to be solid. Doesn't matter. Nothing's safe. And so what happens when someone comes out and says something that threatens? What our pride has told us constitutes our greatness. It comes out with its fists wrapped in duct tape, dipped in glass, and ready to go. No, no, no. Pride protects my sense of greatness. Pride protects my sense of well-being. 
it guards my greatness. But the gospel turns everything upside down, doesn't it? The first or last. It's the last or first. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Not a better example than Jesus, who being very nature God, didn't consider equality with God, something to be held onto and grasped, but took the form of a man, was humiliated, became obedient even unto death. And then what was he? He was exalted. And one day, every knee will bow before him as a result. He was a model for us not to seek inflation, self-inflation, but to take up our cross and die to ourselves and know that we will be exalted, but it will not be of our own doing. And make no mistake about it, God will humble the proud. God will humble the proud. A word to consider. Finally here, uh, again, I know I'm short on time. Let me just say, the -the on-the-ground sovereignty of God rings through in this passage that God rules the kingdom of men. He does not just rule up there or in the abstract, but He rules down here. And He's not just ruling His people down here, the church. He's ruling the kingdoms of men. The American regime is under the meticulous sovereignty of God. And it will end up, and it will end exactly when God chooses for it to end. Just like Babylon. And brothers and sisters, I know that's hard for us to imagine. It's like, the United States end? No, it's like, it's not possible. It's hard for us to imagine, probably. But look at something like Babylon. That region had never seen a greater power. You look at the Roman Empire. They thought it would never end. It all comes to an end. And so if that's the case, let me urge you to do two things. We're about to regrettably warm up for another election season. Every pastor bristles because they know what happens. They knew what happened last time in their churches. But let me give you let me give you a word here. I say it every single election season. Do not be the Christian who acts like your hope and salvation flies in and out on Air Force One. Don't do it. Don't act like it on social media. Don't act like it in your conversations. Any more than Daniel thought his hope and salvation depended on which king he was standing next to and how righteous they were. Do not be the Christian screaming, the sky is falling. God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. If that's the case, let me urge you to do two things. One, pray for our national leaders. First Timothy 2 says, pray for leaders and all those in authority. It d- doesn't say pray for the ones that you like. Pray for the ones that you like. Pray for the one you voted for. doesn't matter. Pray for our leaders so that we can live quiet lives, dignified lives. Pray that God would give, give justice to the king, O God, we heard from Psalm 72. Please give justice to our leaders. Give them wisdom. Pray for them, number one. And number two, do not let our hearts or our personal peace either be deeply comforted or dragged behind the horse of American politics. There are some people who just wear their heart and soul out because of how much they bury their head 
in the next bill, the next policy, the next news report. It exhausts them, and frankly, it's exhausting to watch them get exhausted. Don't be deeply, com deeply comforted. I'm not saying don't applaud anything good that happens. Of course we should do that. Don't be deeply comforted. Don't let your rock be the things that happen that you might be, might be considered good. And do not let your heart be dragged behind the horse of American politics. Because Christ is sovereign over the kingdoms of men. Let's let our hearts and our personal peace be oriented toward and find rest in the promises of God, even as we pray that he would give righteousness to the king. Let's pray. Oh God, we know the pride that lurks in our own hearts, sometimes subtly, sometimes not so subtly. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to consider ways in which we are prideful, that maybe we have categorized in our mind as something else. Would you give us tender and sensitive consciences here? Would you help us not to base our sense of well-being on some kind of therapeutic self-help understanding of us being a great us or something because of whatever we've done? But that we stand on a Christ who's risen from the dead, who's already declared us great. May the words that Christ speak over us count more than the words we speak over ourselves or clamor to hear from others. Give us grace, please, in this task. In Jesus' name.